Hey, before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to remind y'all about one of our favorite products on Hazelmeyer Goods and something we are currently consuming. Decaf coffee. Decaf coffee. This is something where, honestly, it's been really hard to find a good quality decaf. And I personally have been switching to decaf in the morning. I also drink it throughout the day sometimes and definitely in the evening. I would not drink caffeine. I'm not anti-caffeine, but wow, I love coffee and I want to have multiple cups. So uh, don't you agree? It's hard to find a good decaf. It is. There's also, this is such a side note. And I was just like in this moment, I don't know why it's hitting me, but I'm remembering it. I used to think decaf coffee was similar to like the seedless watermelon. Why? In what regard? Like it was grown without caffeine. Oh, yeah. No, it's decaffeinated. It's and that's not the case. No, it's not the case. I still like that idea, though. You know, I don't think that that's possible. Because there are seedless watermelons out there. So let's talk about the decaffeination process for just a second. <laughs> because a lot of people, you know, in the health and wellness world look for the Swiss water method. And I was really surprised to hear that the Swiss water method, while, quote, chemical free, it leads to a lot of issues environmentally because mm-hmm. of the excess water runoff from that process. Yeah. And then like the later acidity of that water once it's rushed, once it has decaffeinated those beans. And so there's actually other natural forms. Our mm-hmm. coffee is, quote, sugarcane processed um, to decaffeinate it. It does not use the sugarcane. Sorry, it does not use the Swiss water method for that very reason. So just I feel like I'm always learning something new. Wasn't there one method that used like tomato I don't know, like the acid from tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, similar um, concept. It yeah. had a name that sounded kind of toxic. Ethyl acetate. That's yeah. what it is. Yep, yeah, it's the same thing. It's just not toxic. It sounds toxic. It sounds scary. It's frightening. To some. Ethyl acetate. Anyways, we we love a good decaf coffee, and uh, you know what? I hope as you pour, as you listen to this episode, you pour yourself a cup as we get started. Hazelmeyergoods.com, shoptheh.com, Shop both of those. <laughs> Will work. Both will work. Shop the H is easy to remember. Shoptheh.com. Get yourself some decaf coffee or just go for the caffeine if that's your jam. This is my day two with no caffeine. Good job. Proud of you. That's good stuff, huh? Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good evening. And together, we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today, we are chatting with Matt Maruka, who is the CEO of Raw Optics, a company that teaches about the essential role that light plays in health and develops advanced light therapy-based products. We're talking about blue blocking glasses. We're talking about both daytime lenses and evening lenses. You guys have probably seen me wear these before. I own two pairs of Matt's Raw Optics lenses and I love them both. And so I'm really excited to jump into today's conversation. All right. So earlier this week, I put up a post with just like a list of all the things I'm looking forward to in, in summertime. And one, two of the segments on this list was no sunscreen and no sunglasses. And then in the caption, I had to say, listen, don't at me about the sun. We're going to have uh, our good friend Matt on the show, and we're going to talk about sunlight and <laughs> in reverse, like artificial light as well. So uh, you would be shocked how many people disregarded my caption and just added. completely yeah. just was got like, wait, ads. what about the sun? So I'm really excited to dive in today and talk about the sun because I feel like it's one of those things that's so misunderstood 
and people fear the sun. We we lather our kids in sunscreen and they put the sun bonnet on mm. and um, it's it's gone from this beautiful life-giving energy source to this thing that's cancer causing cancer causing and carcinogenic right so matt i'm super excited to have you on the show and talk about some of the lies we've been told about sunlight and talk about some of the science behind light so um welcome to the show and can you give us like a can you kick off the conversation with your perspective of the sun yeah absolutely well liz and joey first of all i have to say thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be speaking with you guys today I appreciate the opportunity. I always love a great conversation. Uh, so to kick right off with my perspectives about the sun, it's a really great way to just dive right in. I first have to say that what I'm going to share today is the best of my understanding, also based on the most advanced science, most of which is very generally accepted. And then there's some things that are a bit more... Mm let's say beyond what's generally accepted, but based on really solid science. I have to say that I am super skeptical of everything mainstream. Um, so everything I'm sharing is not based on personal firsthand measurements. Like I haven't been in space, right? Uh, <laughs> so this is, just, this is just the science that is reported by NASA and the governments and whatnot and the scientists. Um, the reason I say this is because I think it's really important for people to be really skeptical of kind of everything, right? Anyway, with that being said, the sun, as far as we know, is this gigantic ball of fire in the sky, which is a star, one of infinite stars, apparently, uh, one of you know hundreds of billions or trillions, but again, supposedly it's infinite and ever-expanding. And it's flying through space at many, many, many hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. And it is one of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands in this thing they call the Milky Way galaxy, and which is composed of many, many stars and a very, very hot center in a similar way that our solar system is centered by a one star, but the center of the galaxy is like one massive star cluster. So anyway, we're kind of on one of the rims sort of in the middle outer area of this massive cluster of stars called the galaxy. And then this is what we call a solar system. So there's one star, the sun, we call it our sun, the sun. And then there's these planets, these bodies of rock or matter, some are more gas, some are more solid as far as we know. And these are these bodies that spherical supposedly bodies that rotate around this sun floating in space and it all sounds kind of crazy if you think about it. but this is this is the the general understanding of, of exactly like what the sun is and, and where it is and where we are and we're on this rock flying around the sun rotating around itself which is making our daily rhythm so there's a daily rotation of the earth around its own axis which makes night and day and because of the Earth's tilt, so the Earth, the Earth, uh, the way at which w the Earth rotates around its own axis is not exactly perpendicular to the axis on which it rotates around the Sun. So if the Earth rotates around the Sun, for those who aren't watching the video, I'm making motions with my hands, but basically like a cross. So the Earth rotates around the Sun on one axis, 
But then the Earth rotates around itself on an axis which is tilted 23 and a half approximately degrees off mm -hmm. from the axis on which it's axis on which it's rotating around the sun. And this 23 and a half degree tilt is the cause of the seasons because when we're on one side of the sun's uh, one side of the sun, then the part of the earth that is represented by the upper portion of my hand right now is leaning in, so to speak, to the sun. And that's summer. And then when the planet, which maintains a consistent tilt relative to its solar axis, is on the other side, you can see the part that is the bottom half of my hand, which represents the southern hemisphere of the earth, is now in summer, and the northern hemisphere is tilted slightly away. And so this small difference in tilt, you know, not a lot of distance relative to how far we are from the sun, that's enough to make the difference between really, really cold winters and really, really hot summers. Like, I know because in PA it's really hot in the summer and really humid, and I'm guessing in Ohio it's mm -hmm. pretty similar. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania for the listener audience in Philadelphia, a very humid place in the summer, very hot and very cold in the winter. So that's small. I mean, mm -hmm. probably, I don't know the exact distance, but it's several thousands of miles, probably dif distance, uh, dif difference in distance from the sun just being tilted, but several thousands relative to millions of miles that we are from the sun. It's kind of interesting that that makes such a big difference in the seasons, but apparently it does. Mm -hmm. And I know this might sound not like the answer you expected, but basically that is the understanding of the sun. So we rotate on this planet around the sun and one full rotation around the sun is what we call a year. One rotation around our own axis is what we call a day. And also fun fact that most people don't know is that the Earth's orbit is not exactly perfectly circular, it's kind of elliptical, meaning that there's a point when we are actually the furthest to the sun, from the sun and closest to the sun, and I'd have to actually go brush up on exactly which day, days those are, but I believe it's January 2nd, I believe the term is the aphelion, it's like the day where the closest or furthest from the sun, I'm pretty sure then it's actually the closest, but mm. it's because of the tilt, it's still winter in the northern hemisphere. But anyway, interesting stuff. So the sun's this ball of fire that, <laughs> relevant to our conversation today and health and what people probably want to know about, but I had to give the context because you asked, it is the source of life on Earth. So like we are these beings that operate with energy. Like mm -hmm. all living organisms require energy to exist. So there's energy that's making us move and... That's how we're moving. If we didn't have energy, we would be dirt on the ground or water in the sea, but we wouldn't be alive in the way that we are. Not to mention the earth would be completely frozen over, but that's a separate conversation. So um, we require energy to be moving. And it's, it's actually very similar. Like, although we don't think of the ocean and its motion as life, and people don't generally necessarily think of the motion of the clouds and precipitation as life, it's very similar to life in the sense that if there weren't the sun, well, everything would be frozen. It wouldn't actually exi probably exist in the first place, but it, it would be frozen if it did exist. And so there wouldn't be life in the sense of movement of energy on Earth. So we are sort of an extension of the natural energy flow of matter on Earth, which is driven by solar energy. You take away the sun, which is our energy source, you take away life. Isaac Newton, the famous physicist who basically created the laws of classical physics and the ba most basic principles of modern physics and invented calculus and everything 
basically had this the second law of motion of Newtonian physics, which is that in order for anything to move, it requires a force. Mm -hmm. A force is a form of energy, a transfer of energy from one body to another. Well, so one of the famous doctors who I follow, who I'd love to get into at one point, named Dr. Wallace, who studies mitochondria, our cellular engines, he says, well, talking to the, lecture, to the audience, he says, well, you guys, you in the audience, you are the most animate things in my environment, meaning the most active, animate, alive. So then where is all that energy coming from for you to be moving? And of course, it's produced by the mitochondria, but before that, it's coming from the sun, mm -hmm. either directly or in the form of food. So the sun is something worth our attention, I would say. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree, given that very detailed context you just <laughs> for us. I love that. Yeah. Um, I, I love that you just said either directly or in the form of food, because I think it was you that I heard, but you were like, basically, when we're eating food, we're just eating sunlight. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, John, geez, you had a really, you made a really good comment there about the detailed commentary. The first thing that thought popped into my mind is like, if it weren't for sun, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like our, the concept of existence is predicated on the sun and the concept of a conversation is predicated on existence. And so therefore our conversation is predicated on the existence of the sun. Anyway, just a side note, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> if it, you know what I mean? So it yeah. goes really, it goes as deep as you want to think Going about deep. it. Yeah, I love it. So regarding food, like most of history of life, uh, or a large portion of it, food wasn't necessarily a concept, like single-celled organisms. It was, but in a different way. Food was the consumption of raw materials in the environment for much of evolution that are electron pairs. They're called redox, redox couples. So basically chemicals that when they bind, they one transfers electrons to another. These are called reduction oxidation reactions, hence redox, reduction oxidation. And bacteria, archaea, these organisms basically would live off of different redox couples where there's two different molecules or atoms that would like to bind, but given their current configurations, they can't. They're, they're in other, like think of it like relationships. They're in relationships, but they would be really happy together. They'd make a much better couple than their current relationships, redox couples. Um, <laughs> But anyway, they'd make much better couples, but they have to, there needs to be some stimulus to break them free from their current configurations or relationships, in my analogy, for them to then be able to come together and connect, or in the analogy of a relationship, fall in love, which is actually kind of the same as on an atomic level or a human level. But anyway, so the energy breaks them free and then they'd react. Now, life's purpose is invest a little bit of energy. So life's like an investor, invest a little bit of energy cause these things to jiggle free from their current configurations and then life wins a return on its investment when these two finally react and the re the release of energy is greater than what was put in that's basically how life exists because it invests a little energy like a good business person invests a little bit and gets something much better out so as as um at the lowest level as above so below i guess you could say so at the lowest level of mm, chemistry, biology, physics, quantum biology, it's the same what we're doing today. 
businessmen invest in something, they put in a certain amount of energy, and if they don't get back more than they invested, then they're, it's not viable, it's not sustainable. You can't use that to grow or to feed your family. So it's the same in life. Like You can't invest more energy and get less back. So life invests energy uh, off redox couples. Now, although this is what, all, so all the life ever did and does, so now, um, life uses most life on Earth, most volume of life, not variety. So there's variety as different types of organisms. There's lots of va- bacteria and archaea, lots more than there are plants and animals. This is as crazy as it sounds because there's lots of plants and animals. There's a lot more different kinds of bacteria and archaea by species, by type. But they're so small, by volume, you can't even see them. There's a lot more by volume life of trees and animals and plants and plankton and fish and all this by volume. And life that grew to the biggest sizes is life that basically made this merger, like this deal way back in the day. So like kind of like a business example again, kind of like a, the use of delegation. So instead of everyone running a, a one-man business, which is kind of inefficient because then if you're a one-man business or a one-woman business, you have to do finance, accounting, you know, sales, marketing, research and development. You have to do all that. It's kind of inefficient for one person to do all that. I know that because I've done that for a while. (laughs) I'm building a team. I've been building a team. Um, So what life did was there's two different types of bacteria uh, that basically made a merger. And you're probably familiar with mitochondria, but what many people don't know is that mitochondria used to be their own independent bacteria. And they made an agreement with another type of bacteria where the one bacteria called archaeobacteria is the host of the organism. So like the boss, like the CEO, kind of like the organizer, the one who goes out and gets business and just kind of organizes things and this and that. The mitochondria are like expert salespeople, let's say. They're energy producers. So basically, they could stop having to do the one-man show business, which all living organisms were doing. Like each organism would have to get its own fuel, burn the fuel, maintain its genetic information, do all of this. This deal was basically that one organism would take over all of the genetic information, structural and functional jobs, structure and function. And then the mitochondria, the other one, would take over energy production. So it's a really good delegation. So now every single eukaryotic cell, so modern, not modern, but the cells that make up plants and animals and fungi, are like supercell colonies, essentially. So there's actually around 1,000, 500 to 1,000 mitochondria, these previous bacterial cells in every single human cell. So like we have like 100 trillion cells, 50 to 100 trillion cells, the scientists say. Mm -hmm. So, and per cell, there's 500 to 1,000 mitochondria. So that's a lot of mitochondria. Like it's too many zeros to, you know, count. You you could count them. But anyway, it's like quintillions. Anyway, so this merger, what happened, the way that life became so complex, it's a really interesting thing. How did life go from being like so small bacteria on the table, you can't even see it to us? We can't even see at that, where we came from because it's that small. It's because the amount of energy that was saved from every single mitochondria not having to maintain, uh, basically maintain its own genes was a huge amount of savings. So imagine you have a thousand mitochondria in a human cell. If each of those had to maintain all of its genes, it would spend most of its energy just maintaining its own genes. So basically like 90 plus percent, 95 plus percent of the mitochondria's genes were all transferred to the nucleus of the modern cells where you only need two copies for sexual reproduction. So you could otherwise have one copy, but two copies gives the system a lot more variety and creates 
male and female sexes. That's kind of why there's this different flavors of every eukaryotic organism, male and female. That's a whole nother conversation. The difference between male and female is a lot older than the difference between human and chimpanzee, like mm. on the scale of billions of years. Um, but anyway, that's another conversation. So um, basically, um, at, a, at, a, at a certain level. Anyway, so what I'm getting at is now in a human cell, you don't have a thousand copies of a thousand genes per cell. You only need two copies of those genes and we keep those in the nucleus. So the mitochondria put all of their genes in the nucleus. I know I'm, I'm getting pretty deeper. I hope it's not too far off, but I'll, I'll wrap this up to a point. So basically the mitochondria transferred their genes to the nucleus. And so you only need two copies, not a copy for every single mitochondria. The mitochondria kept only 13, the genes for 13 proteins which are directly responsible for energy production. So if you imagine like if you had a city planner and they were building a, they wanted to build a, a power plants, right? So you would, you, the, once the power plant was finished construction, you might have in the mayor's office or the city planner's office the, the plans for that power plant. But the one thing you would keep at the power plant would be the wiring diagram, the specific instructions of how the power plant's going to operate in case any problems happen. That's what the genes that were kept with mitochondria. So they still have their own genes, just not the whole thing. The ones responsible for structure and function stayed in the nucleus. So it's just saved so much energy, literally thousands fold of energy, not having to maintain the same copies of the same genes. Another great analogy I've used before is imagine if you had like a thousand children in a room doing the same exam, solving the same problems. Like it would be inefficient if only one of them could solve the same problem and pass it to the next thousand. That's essentially the difference, but not just for one problem, but for a thousand problems per gene. So there's like literally thousands fold of energy savings by this merger that was done. And that's how we went from these single celled organisms that are extremely simple to extremely complex arms, legs, limbs, varied organ systems. It's a massive energy saving. Now, the question was about food. How does food, how is food relevant? Well, so what we do in our mitochondria, so mitochondria within us are our connection to primordial life. They're our connection to surviving off of these ener the energy of the environment. And so they burn our food. And so the, the energy we use, the, the, the reaction we use to get energy from the environment is hydrogen and oxygen. So you're familiar, I'm sure, with photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Many people don't know exactly how photosynthesis works, but um, what happens is light from the sun comes down to the earth and it causes the water molecule to be split into hydrogen and oxygen. And then plants breathe in carbon dioxide. And then they take the hydrogen that's split from the oxygen from water and then bind it onto carbon on the carbon dioxide and they make what's called sugar, glucose. C6H12O6 is the chemical formula. So carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. 6126 and that's glucose that's sugar that's the basic building block of all plant matter on earth all cellulose all plants all trees all starch that we eat and then when plants when animals eat those plants that goes into fat but so basically sunlight energy is stored in the electrons of those hydrogens on that carbon backbone so basically when we consume fuel we send it into our mitochondria, which are basically internal combustion engines like a car. They're like fire. Fire, the process of fire, same thing in a car, same thing in, a, in, in your fireplace in your house. It basically takes hydrogen-based fuels, so logs, leaves, newspaper, gasoline. It all comes from plants. Gasoline comes from old fossils, which could be plants or animals from millions of years ago under the ground, but it's still old sunlight energy that we put in a little energy, like a spark, 
Mm-hmm. And that spark causes, like I was saying about the relationship analogy earlier, that spark causes these hydrogens to be freed from their present configurations, like the relationships they're in essentially. They're currently bound up on carbon, but a little spark is all it takes to break the hydrogens free. And then there's lots of oxygen in the air. And so what the hydrogen, which was, by the way, released by the plants when they broke apart the water molecule in photosynthesis. So now the water that was split comes back together. The hydrogen from the the carbon backbone, whether it's a fat, a carbohydrate, paper, leaves, gasoline, that hydrogen breaks off and binds with the oxygen from the air and it makes water again. And that that reaction is what I was saying earlier, releases more energy than it took to start it. And so that serves, the energy that's released is the next spark and it breaks more hydrogens off. And that's why all it takes is one flick of a lighter to light up a whole piece of newspaper. Mm. All you need is to break a few hydrogens free. They start reacting with the oxygen in the air. They make water. You don't see it because it evaporates immediately. And then they start... Uh, reacting, releasing a lot of energy, which you see and feel, and it could hurt you pretty badly if you're not careful with it. And all that's left is the carbon that formed up the backbone of the hydrogen-based fuel source in the beginning. And that's the ash that you see left over after a fire. That's all that's left. And that's what we do inside of us. We consume the hydrogens, just like a fire does, gasoline or logs or anything, hydrogen-based fuel, which is food, which came from the energy in the hydrogen came from the sun when it was split in photosynthesis. We consume it, we break it apart, funnel those hydrogens into our mitochondria, these ancient organisms. We react them with oxygen that we breathe in from the air, just like a fire takes air from the air directly. We make water in our cells, hydrates our cells. So we make a lot of water, like two and a half liters per day of water, so like half a gallon plus per day in our cells. And then that releases a lot of energy, and hence we're alive. So the point is without sun, to your question, this was probably way too deep. I hope this was not too much. But basically, without the sun, there would be nothing for us to take from food. It would just be dirt. Right. I'm going to make my kids listen to this as their science class for the day. Because, you know, we homeschool. So thank you for doing I love the teaching that. for God me. Bless. <laughs> Education check, right? We're, we're going to go ahead. And... You got your chemistry and biology lesson today, folks. So... That was way too much, guys. No, I love <laughs> it. I love it. I... I'm like, what am I saying right now? Where is this coming from? Dude, oh my clearly, God. Matt knows about the sun, right? It's so, a granular. <laughs> it's a good start. It's a granular perspective. And I think it's just, first of all, I didn't know fire produces water. That's new to me. That's, did you know that? I, you know, I think I knew. I think I did know that. But oh, not, not in the right. sense that like. It's not like it's going to like rain. It's like it evaporates so quickly you don't even see it. It's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. If you look at the combustion reaction, so if anybody just Google searches combustion, everyone knows combustion is fire. Mm-hmm. The, the formula, I just looked it up, it's literally CH4 plus O2. So carbon and hydrogen that basically were broken off from a hydrogen-based fuel source. All that people need to understand is the term hydrogen-based fuel source. It basically is anything that we can burn to make a fire or consume like eating, whether it's gasoline or logs or paper or fire, anything that came from plants, cotton shirts, I mean, Mm -hmm. from plants, this is based on cellulose, just like a log. So hemp, whatever. And then obviously you could also burn fat like candle wax, Mm -hmm. for example, or blubber that they use for lamps. And it contains a lot more energy because it's kind of been condensed when an animal consumes it. That's why it's a lot more efficient for us to store fat on our body as a fuel source But when we need fast-burning fuel, we store glycogen because it's Mm -hmm. easier to burn quickly compared to fat. 
But anyway, if people understand hydrogen-based fuel source, it'll all make sense. You, have, you just, all we have to do is rip off the hydrogens and then we don't have to do anything besides that. You just input that energy like an investor, a little bit of energy, like a spark. Mm. And then you break off those hydrogens and they automatically start reacting with the oxygen in the air. So carbon plus carbon and hydrogen bound together plus oxygen from the air makes in combustion water plus CO2, carbon dioxide. And often there's a bit of carbon left over, which is the chalk ash that we see, not chalk, but the ash we see at the end of a fire. So it is really simple. But yeah, I'm so grateful you guys mentioned that because it's, it's simple. But like when we learn it in chemistry, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody can't explain it in a way that's actually applicable, like plants take sunlight and split water and make the things we talked about. They release oxygen and they make sugar with the carbon dioxide they breathed in and the hydrogen. And then we literally reverse this process. Everybody knows this cliche. I think everybody know, more or less knows the cliche that like we do the opposite of plants. Like we're sort of symbiotic. Plants mm-hmm. release oxygen and we breathe that in and they we breathe out carbon dioxide and they breathe that in. But we don't realize that there's another half to that story, which is that they also provide the fuel source that we consume to react with the oxygen to release the energy and be alive and then breathe out the carbon dioxide again. So anyway. It's such an efficient system. Like it's it's beautifully designed. I've, I'm, it's I'm, as I'm, if there's a greater intelligence organizing it all. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think that that's fascinating. Okay. So first of all, do you have any questions? I mean. You are jotting things down in here. I did. Book, which uh, is usually the sign that you've got a question. I, I do, but we haven't gotten there quite yet. Okay, I, just, okay. I had a feeling that, that, and I could just jump into it. And the thought that I had was, um, it was, it, it clicked in my head. I was. I might have been watching an Instagram reel. I might have been listening to some kind of podcast. And it was this idea of eye colors responding to oh sunlight differently. Yes. And I've always wondered about this because me and, and, and a lot of my family, we all have uh, very blue eyes. And they're just freaking blue as, as, as can be. Anyways, and it, there's something about the resilience of blue eyes being less than that of darker eye color. I don't know. Is any of this tracking with you? Does this mean anything? Yeah, very much. I mean, what I do, and I would be very interested in learning more about this. I'm glad you bring it up. But right off the top of my head, um, I'm pretty sure that melanin, which is the pigment that's responsible for the darkening of skin, is the same as the one that's responsible for the darkening of eyes. I'm almost certain of that. but anyway, so melanin, we have more, there's more in the eyes of someone with dark eyes than light eyes, essentially. So what it means is that people with darker eyes, their eyes will essentially be more protected because the place that absorbs the light is the pupil in the middle, the black part. The reason it's black is because it absorbs all the light. Mm-hmm. Anything that's black is absorbing all the light. That's basic 101 of light. And anything that's white is reflecting all the light. So black clothes absorb all the light, white clothes reflect all the light. Colored clothes absorb all the light except that specific color or combination of wavelengths that appear as a certain color. So when we have brown eyes, dark, dark brown eyes, it's absorbing a lot of the light that's incident on the cornea on the eye. And so less is getting into the pupil, which would be very good if you lived in a place with like tropical equatorial sunlight. It just makes sense. It's like extra protective. In the same way that people with lighter skin gained an evolutionary advantage in colder, darker climates with less light, 
throughout the year, especially in the winter months, um, by getting lighter skin, the lighter eye kind of goes right with that. Same with lighter hair. It allows us to absorb more light by rather than, so if I had black hair, it's absorbing more light, not reflecting more into my eyes and my skin. If it's very dark, it would be more, meaning very low light in the winter would be better as a organism that depends on the light to have less of the light absorbed by my hair and skin and retina or iris and more of it being, you know, put out so that it can be, how do I say this, absorbed. It might not, it might, it doesn't quite translate. I have to say that differently. If someone ha if there's a white table, the white table is reflecting the light, not absorbing it. White skin is different because skin isn't a table. It's, it's not paint. Mm. What lighter skin is, so the part that you see, the, the, top, the surface layers of the skin are light, but it's more translucent to the light. So basically, in the case of skin, when you have lighter skin, it's actually, a, the surface layers are absorbing uh, less, which allow the deeper layers to absorb more, essentially. It allows more light in. So it's more like a window. It's more like a skin is actually more translucent. So skin would be more com comparable to uh, like glass than to a table that's mm -hmm. white. I happen to use the table example because the table's in front of me that's white or a wall. But so like darker skin would be more comparable to darker glass that's letting less light through because okay. it's translucent. Tips, yeah. Meaning translucent means trans is across, lux means light, and lucent means passing. Translucent means light passing through essentially in Latin. So skin is translucent. So lighter skin is more translucent to light. So anyway, it's, it's basically the same thing with the iris, although the iris doesn't exactly absorb the light, but by being lighter, it's absorbing less than darker irises, letting more light go into the pupil to power biological functions. I hope that it does. It's almost like when the football players wear the little black uh, stripe under their eye because they're hoping that that absorbs more light and gives them less glare. That's so interesting. I had no idea about that. That is fascinating, and it makes yes. Perfect. That's why they wear this. These like it's like the uh, yeah, you know the, what I'm talking yeah, about? The, the, the face patch. paint, the, the grease like under the eyes. Well, I thought it was like a sticker, but yeah. Sometimes I think it is a sticker these days. That makes perfect sense, and that is extremely accurate. So yes, thank you. You've just given me another great analogy that I'm going to use. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, so like I think the players I, wear the black thing under their eyes that absorbs the light so that it doesn't reflect into their iris or pardon uh, pupil and blind them temporarily, especially with those bright lights in the stadiums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're almost like uh, calibrating the amount of sunlight that's going directly into the black hole of your pupil by, yeah. by manipulating the colors on the outside. And sometimes we can't manipulate our own eye color, but I guess you can if you wear colored contacts mm, or like I dyeing your that. hair. I actually, my eye color changed from brown to green from all the sun practices I did. It no was way. definitively brown when I was younger. And I was always like, I don't know why. I like, why did I want to have lighter eyes than darker eyes? I don't know. Just kids, you know. But um, when I was younger, I was like, no, I swear my eyes are hazel. And my siblings were like, sorry, dude, your eyes are brown. <laughs> Pretty dark brown too. <laughs> and then like finally, like, I mean, I'd have to... I don't even know if the camera will pick it up and they, they might still look brown. Like it's hard to even see your super blue eyes here. But if I was to do this and then turn. I oh, no, I can see some green. But if I was to do this and then make it colder, I don't know if you can see my eyes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But anyway, so 
they're, I've seen it in, in good lighting conditions. I've seen them enough times to know, oop, there goes the light. Um, isn't that amazing? The power of light. Look at the difference. It's crazy. It's wild. For anyone watching this, I have shadows on my face. It's dark. It's totally, you turn on, I have a video light here. It's funny. Changes things a little bit, doesn't it? It's crazy. Anyway, completely. speaking about the power of light, um, and I can look, I can make it warmer. And when you're, when your light's warmer, people look better. This is a total digression, but it's a great, it's a teachable moment. <laughs> it's a useful I'm moment. I'm into it. People who are listening, you have to just get on YouTube and follow their channel. I don't know what else to tell you. Because um, if you're just listening, sorry, you're missing out. Um, so, <laughs> so we have lots of blood in our, under our skin. And when we have warmer light, it means it contains more red and less blue. And so blood is somehow, let's see, blood turns red when we expose it to oxygen, to air. Uh, so blood, when it's red, it means it's absorbing everything and reflecting red. So basically, blood isn't red until it hits the oxygen technically, but uh, below our skin, essentially it has a reddish hue when it comes to the surface. So like, for example, like women wear lipstick because it, uh, I mean, I can't speak for all women across all time, but like the general reason scientifically why women would wear lipstick and, and blush is because when someone's sexually aroused, blood is flowing to their cheeks, their lips. It's kind of like an indicator of fertility in a mm. sense in the mating game and like, hey, I'm ready uh, kind of thing for the mating process. And so essentially to wear lipstick and blush is essentially supposedly supposed to, well, trick a male into thinking that the woman is in that physical state for that purpose, but it's more part of the modern like dating game. Guys do their own things. I'm would have to sit and think for a second what exactly those are, but um, I don't know, maybe training and getting But we're ready. talking about red right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but thank you. So basically, gosh, where was I going with this? So if I have warm light on my skin, it actually looks really good. Like it makes you look a certain way. And you know what's funny is people might say, like the way you look is a direct function of the light you're under. Um, and obviously there's certain factors about like if the light's bad, like some people might look really good even in bad light, but not often. How can I, why does this, how do I say this to make it click? So if the lights are off, how does somebody look? You don't see them. Exactly. Yeah. They, they don't, they, they look nothing. They look not at all because there's no light reflecting off of them. Hence the concept of looking doesn't totally. exist. So all looking and seeing is predicated on light, the presence of light bouncing off objects. And the interesting thing is you can't see light until it bounce off of, bounces off of an object. You see a bit of a glow around this, but that's more of an effect of the grease on my camera than it is of light. If you were here in this room, you wouldn't see the light between me and this video light. Um, you can't see it. Right. But when it bounces off of me, you can see it significantly because it's interacting with my matter. And that's so you can only see light really when it interacts with matter. So anyway, um, now to the demonstration. So if I change this light, to a colder light. So warmer light is generally very, so I'll make it a little, oh, oof, no, that's cool, colder. What I'm trying to show you is that people look generally better in warmer light. So I'm turning this way up and I'm gonna blind myself for a second here, just for the purpose of this demonstration. Probably too bright now. So if I switch this to colder light right now, not that I'm gonna look a lot worse, but I'll look, so you see what you, I won't say, and I won't give you a judgment. That's colder. Oh yeah, I mean it's almost like bluer. It's kind of what I was. It is a lot bluer. That's yeah. For sure. I even it's feel like lot. your face presents differently. To be honest, it does. What I would say is like 
it, you know, it's actually not as bad just because the video light is so good and I can control the illumination so well that, uh -huh. and it's directly on me. But like, look, if the light's overhead, you look like a gremlin because you get these shadows on your face. So anyway, um, what I'm getting at is in general, now you'll have to, people will have to go observe this because it's, it's a little bit hard. I have to figure out exactly how I want to demonstrate this optimally. But basically, if you see someone, the same person in a room with fluorescent tube lighting, mm -hmm. or you see the same person in daylight, especially in golden hour when mm -hmm. people love to go out and do photo shoots, that same person looks so good in golden hour light versus in the fluorescent tube light in an office or a school. And it's not even that the person like, it's not like it's cheating looking better. What I'm trying to, this is what I'm trying to get across. It's not like it's cheating looking better in uh, the better light. It's like it actually shows a better side of us. Like it shows, how do I it's put It's more this? realistic, right? It's because more realistic. It actually would be a good way to put it. It's more, it's more real. It shows more of our true, true color, if you will. I can't get Jerry Seinfeld out of my head. What's that? The episode where oh, yeah. he did. So Jerry Seinfeld uh, dates this woman in this episode and there's he keeps seeing her in different he lights he sees her yeah. in different lights and yeah. so sometimes she walks in a room and he's like oh i'm so happy to see you and then when he breaks up with her he she walks onto the porch and he goes ah and he goes bad lighting out there and shuts the door because she looks so much worse in this bad lighting and it's just like, it's a good episode it's exactly what we're talking about so but it just just for me to understand this in more layman's terms and if it's not appropriate to answer Mayman's terms, that's fine. But it's, it's almost like the way our you, you were you were kind of referring to the blood beneath our skin is interacting and or receiving or reflecting the light that's coming in. Is that what we're saying? Let's see. Uh, yes. So when we have warmer light, it's the blood, not the skin. It's the blood under the skin. Yes. Thank you to kind of loop this all together uh, to close the point that I didn't quite fully close. So it's yes, warmer light. What does warmer light mean? It means a lot more red and a lot less blue. So essentially when you have warmer light, you see people's blood, not exactly. You don't see the blood, but and you this... see the, 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 the color in, in the blood, Fleshy similar tones. to blush. Yeah. And so it's more... It's more of a, uh, I don't want to say even realistic, but it's more of an attractive, appealing look than in what I would say if I just switch this to colder light. Mm -hmm. People look more ghostly, more yeah, like, like dead. Like gray and dead, fact, exactly. Exactly. And if you could, and, and exactly, but that's kind of the difference. And if you used ultraviolet A light, you would see like black lights, but really strong, intense. Even you could see like all of the, I guess, let's say imperfections on my skin that I, you would in the same way that you can use a black light to see things like uh, fingerprints and all this stuff, you can see certain things that you wouldn't see. So yeah, we look better in warmer light generally because it's, we see more of the blood. So if you're uh, anyway. filming yourself on a reel or an Instagram or YouTube or FaceTime, <laughs> step outside in the sun because you're going to look better than under your fluorescent light, yeah. right? Unless, unless you, um, oh, let's see, unless you, let's see, I'm trying to get back to warm, geez. Um, so unless you are in the midday sun, in which case, in order for the light to be incident on you, other because if you just go out in midday sun and the sun's up here mm. and you're taking videos, you have to get yourself like angled. So yeah. one thing I've I've, learned, I've gotten, I, I mean, I, I kind of like not to toot my own horn, horn too much, but I've gotten like really good at taking photos since studying light. Photography just means capturing light. And when you understand the way light waves move, you know that if the sun's up here and it's 10 a.m. in the morning in the summer, 
you're going to look way better if you, instead of taking a photo like this, if you look up and have your phone in a position where the beams of the light are uh, parallel to the angle at which the phone is taking the photo, you will look great. Or if like the sun's directly overhead or high up, if you lay on your back and take a photo, just try it, you'll look great. Now try also taking a photo with the sun behind you and you'll see how absolutely horrible and shadowed you look. You can't really see, you can't really see yourself. It's not that mm -hmm. you look bad, it's just that you can't, it actually is that you look bad. It's more like people can't see you properly because you're not illuminated properly. The uh, This idea of being able to see the blood through the skin also kind of helps further emphasize this point of the translucent nature of our skin that you were referring to before it is definitely in the sense that uh, a darker skin tone would be one that is almost of a darker tint this window is is almost like the tinted windows in your car whereas exactly you know for for us now now here's what i'm curious about is that 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 translucent skin like i can go out and get a sun tan and and i'm curious how does that happen so so is that like what part of my body is tanning is that the outside layer of skin yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have to, so let's, uh, I'm going to put a pin in tanning. This is a great question. I love Joey two times now. This is amazing. You've circled back on points that weren't fully closed and we're closing them. So it's amazing. It's his I love skill. It. It's why he's absolutely. here. Absolutely. It is a great, great skill to have. So the thing about this, the, the color of, of skin is that this is something because, well, especially in the modern world of today, when you start to anything, you talk about skin color, anything, it starts, people get really on edge. Um, our first skin tone, as far as we know as humans, was very dark coming from sub-Saharan Africa. And this is extremely advantageous in, in, in tropical and equatorial regions. And the reason for this is because there's so much light that if you that we need to be protected from that light. So there's much more melanin in the skin. The genes for producing melanin are significantly more activated and upregulated. And that protects our body. So like if I went to sub-Saharan Africa and had to compete with a, a person whose genetics evolved there to hunt throughout all of the year, I would probably die very quickly compared to that person who evolved there because their body's much more designed to tolerate that high, high intensity ultraviolet light that's pretty much constantly there during daytime from pretty early in the day. I spent a lot of time in, not in Africa, but in Bali and Costa Rica. So other uh, high, high intensity, equatorial, tropical locations. And so for most of the earth's population through most of history, which most population still lives in the tropics. So like around the equator, like India, uh, Indonesia, Southern China, and basically that's it. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, that is a really big advantage. Now it becomes a disadvantage when humans migrated further north and there's less light because we need the light to power our biological systems, but we don't need unlimited amounts. We need a bit, a good amount, but not insane amounts. And so that's where the lighter skin ad adaptation became useful. Now the interesting thing is in the modern world where everyone's inside, it is and it is important for everyone to get out outdoors more. But so for example, if you took someone with darker skin who's living uh, in somewhere with a lot less light, they would have to get outdoors a lot more. So that from the lightest skin type, which I'm probably one away from, to the darkest skin type, um, there's like six skin types on a scale called the Fitzpatrick's skin type. There's like many, every variation in between, but like six major uh, you know separations. 
and the darkest skin type takes six times longer to make the same amount of vitamin D wow. in the same conditions as the lightest skin. So again, it's, but I think it might even go further in the opposite direction. The lightest skin probably would burn six times or even more faster in the same amount of sun. So it's, it's literally, it's not like one's better or worse. It's literally just different advantages for different environments. Like I can't stand being in the tropics too long. Like I, mm-hmm. I've tried, I want to live in Costa Rica or Bali, places like that. I just get too hot and I overheat and I'm just like, I need, and there's a whole nother thing that we don't need to get into right now, but our might, we could if we want, but let's get to the tanning thing first. But our mitochondria, which are our energy producers, have, have also adapted differently. So the genes in our mitochondria that I was talking about earlier that they kept where most of the genes for the structure and functions of the cells went to the nucleus and we keep two copies and not a thousand copies across all those mitochondria, just two in the main, the big boss's office basically in the cell, the nucleus. Um, the, the ones that the mitochondria kept, those affect yeah, how they work essentially. And so those have also mutated throughout history. Now the interesting thing, side note, got a couple of things going on here is that mitochondria are only passed down by women. So the, uh, the basic difference between men and women is that women are the flavor, is the best term I could come up with, of, of any species. Women are, the, there's two flavors, male and female. So women are the flavor that's responsible for passing on the mitochondria. So women actually like are the carriers of life, essentially. Men are the pro- pro- providers of genetic information and in certain species of animal of, of insects, the women will actually take the men's s- genetic information, semen, whatever, and then eat the male for nutrients. They'll literally be inseminated and then eat their husband. Talk about like- That's brutal. That's, yeah, I know. It's, it's really- like spiders, right? It's like a tarantula. Yeah, something like that. But exactly, mm. there's, 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 an, so not to say like in different species, there evolved different roles. Like in, in humans, men evolved to be more of like the protect, protectors and providers. So there's an important function, but women ultimately would be the ones who carry on life. Um, so men go out and risk their lives and die and fight in wars and women and children typically would be prioritized, like in the sinking Titanic, for example. So yeah. although there's a lot of like modern disagreements about and, and and rightfully so I think in many ways about the way women have been treated in a society that shifted kind of out of a healthy balance of, of that of that protector and, and so on relationship um, there are advantages to being a woman biologically like the women are really the ones passing on life um, the researcher who talks about this mitochondrial stuff kind of joked when he, he, so he discovered this, that, that mitochondria are only passed down by women. What this means is that unlike in every gen, so if, if you were a, a detective and you were trying to look back at human evolution and every single generation, the nuclear genes are intermixed, it's impossible to track anything back because you don't know where, what genes came from because every single generation they get mixed in. So you go up from somebody to their parents and you can't tell, you couldn't tell by looking at me exa- like which parent the genes came from unless you also had my parents' genetic index. And you couldn't tell which parent theirs came from unless you had the, all of theirs. And so it's impossible to follow. It's mixing, It's like a deck of cards that's shuffled every time. Mitochondria are passed down only by women. So there's many, many fewer mutations in mitochondrial genetics every generation. And that's the other reason the genes are separated. Because the nuclear genes are all the genes that if they get fully intermixed, it doesn't really matter as much. The mitochondrial genes are the most important for energy production. If you mix in two different mitochondrial genes, the next generation, at least in rodents that they've measured, is usually um, either dies immediately 
uh, either in like can't even be uh, can't even be conceived properly or dies very early on in pregnancy or stillbirth or um, has developmental disorders like autism or severe psychosis, for example, like doesn't function. And that's because when you splice in the mitochondrial, the mitochondrial genes are perfectly adapted for the environment where the organisms are. So for example, high up in the Himalayas, the Tibetans have mitochondria that are evolved to work with really low oxygen levels. People in Northern Europe, which is what I was getting to, have mitochondria. So this is what I was talking about, why I can't tolerate the heat as well. People in Northern Europe, not only did our skin change, our mitochondria change, where when I eat calories of food, my mitochondria are less efficient, meaning they have evolved and all of you, you guys both have light skin, so more than likely you have similar mitochondria, similar functions, but most Northern European mitochondrial haplotypes, that's what these groups are called, they emit more heat per calorie you burn, per calorie of food you consume or calorie you're burning. So like an engine, a car engine is more efficient the more energy of the gasoline it can convert into movement. And it's less efficient when it produces more heat. Now, if you're, if the concern is, so this is the way Dr. Douglas Wallace, this mitochondrial researcher puts it, in Africa, you need to run away from lions. So your concern is about maximum efficiency. Oh, I'm trying. In Northern Europe, you're, there are no lions. Lions weren't intelligent enough for a variety of reasons to move that far and migrate and survive in those different environments, probably largely because their prey, which they feed off of, don't have any fuel in places like grass, like the gazelles that they eat don't have any grass, so the lions don't go up there because the gazelles don't because there's no grass in Northern Europe. Humans are the hunters, a little more intelligent, and figured out how to live off of what was there. So our mitochondria adapted where you're not gonna die from having to run away from a lion, you're gonna freeze to death. So it'd be better if you shifted your mitochondria to release a little bit more energy as heat instead of being efficient for maximal ability to sprint. So why are the fastest sprinters in the world, mostly not all, Usain Bolt, sub-Saharan African mitochondria because he's more efficient. And the best marathoners, generally, not all of them, but Kipchoge from Kenya, maximally efficient. So if, not to say that people with lighter skin can't compete, but if it's disproportionate, they have a not unfair advantage, but they have a advantage. It's up to people to judge whether it's unfair or not. They have a biological advantage at endurance sports. So anyway, that's the thing about mitochondria and heat production and, and why like Somewhere like me in Costa Rica, there's so much heat, and I'm also already producing more heat. It's a bit of an issue. So there was one more place. Oh, just to get to about the genetic mixing. So the, the first time human migration patterns were fully accurately mapped was when they discovered that mitochondria are only passed down by mothers because that genetic mixing that I was saying, like a deck of cards being mixed in where you can't tell which card came from where essentially, doesn't happen with the mitochondrial genes. Because if it did, a system that's been perfectly refined for that exact environment would now be completely mixed in and ruined. And so that's why the animals that when they do splice the mitochondrial genes in lab tests, which they can, I don't exactly know how they do it, but very advanced techniques to mix in the genes, it, it kills the next generation. You literally cannot advance. So, or they're, they're completely psychotic and they literally can't function because their brain has no energy to function because they don't make enough energy. And the brain is the most energy consuming organ in the heart and the retina which is part of the brain actually in the eye. But anyway, um, the point is they could track. So generation to generation as mothers pass on the mitochondria, there's very small changes over lots of generations. So basically what that gave these researchers as soon as they realized that was a map. 
so they could follow back all they could get human samples of people existing today in different places and see the differences between those and see basically exactly the, the things that are in common with people in other places and those that are different and get an exact map of how humans migrated now this doesn't apply for the most recent 700 years or so really five to 600 years when mass human migrations occurred by boat and now by air mm -hmm. across continents, but up to five. So this is why if you get a 23andMe gene test, it'll basically say, this is your genetics from where your ancestors came from up to about 500 years ago. But like after this, it's like, there's no, unless you're Native American, we're not like really from America. We're, for example, European or African or Asian or whatever. Anyway, so that's how they mapped out human migration patterns is using the slight changes in mitochondrial genes over a period of time. So there's those differences. High oxygen in the Himalayas, high up in the mountains, more efficient with less oxygen. Cold places, releasing more heat. Hot places, releasing less heat, converting more into useful energy. Now to the question about tanning, which is a really good question. Um, basically, when we tan, so it's like a window you said with a tint. It's, it's basically the same. It's super advantageous if you're in a place with high intensities of light because like I was saying before, like if you have to be out hunting to survive even during the day, like you're much more resilient to getting burnt. If I were out in sub-Saharan African sun, I would, I would probably die of heat stroke through if I was out for a whole day and sub like you could put me in the sun and said, tied me down and cooked me in the sun the whole day, I'd probably die like within one day. I mean, and somebody even with that dark skin might also, but not as quickly, like way less quickly, for example. So anyway, this is kind of that. I hope, did I answer that, the question fully? I know we kind of went in another direction first. Yeah, it's like tanning when done appropriately, and I would assume like over small, consistent periods of time, you're literally just increasing your skin's tint. And so then you're then able to withstand more, more sun exposure. Yeah, Great point. Because, hey, less light is actually getting to the lower epidermal yeah. layers. Do you know yes. what I'm saying? Now, something you mentioned that I thought was also really interesting is that having this, this idea of, of, of and, and I'm going to ask a question and we don't have to answer it. But it came to my mind, and I don't want it to be like controversial. But the but the COVID pandemic happened, right? And a huge factor that came out was that we were really oh, low vitamin on D. vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And something that was coming out a lot was that, um, and and this is just news, right? I'm just recounting news, is that the African American communities were suffering major losses in the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And you made a comment about uh, making or generating vitamin D from sunlight is something where if you're really light skinned, you're going to produce that vitamin D very quickly from being in the sunlight. And I'm just curious, is, is there, is there, is it possible that there had there, there was anything, there was anything to do with us yes. being inside, being out of the sunlight. And that if I was to go outside and get any sunlight at all, my body was like, like zapping that sunlight up. And that some of these other folks that were, that, that had these darker skin tones, uh, maybe were at a disadvantage. Is that, is that possibly true? I think it's, uh, definitely true based on the science, just purely research. Again, it's it's difficult in the modern world because people get very much into uh, divisive. Totally other factors at play. I'm, I'm not scientifically alone. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not about that whole political thing, but like just purely looking at the science, trying to provide information that's going to be valuable. Like again, and people might immediately jump to think, oh, you know, he's saying that people with lighter skin have an advantage. That's not true. 
If I go to a place in the tropics, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a severe disadvantage from the solar perspective. Like I could get destroyed, like really, really injured. And I've gotten sunburned enough times to know that like I have to be really careful in the tropics. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I do believe though, based on the scientific evidence, that is a very real, reasonable possibility that there is some kind of connection there. Obviously, there's also social factors like people in uh, African American communities often have less access to natural totally. food, and there's all totally. that as well. So those also play a role as well, and those are worth considering. Totally. Um, but yeah, so uh, regarding the tint thing in the skin, just to elucidate the mechanism a little bit more, because that's that I realized that was what you had asked about. It's pretty simple. Uh, the stimulus of the light on our eyes and our skin causes, uh, it's a stimulus, it signals for certain chemicals to be produced. And one of those chemicals, or first there's the cell called melanocytes, and the melanocytes make melanin. And so melanin, as we've touched on, is the chemical that is responsible for that production of melanin, uh, which is the pigment that basically takes high energy uh, light, shorter wavelength, higher frequency light, because light's measured in wavelengths, which is the distance between the peaks of two waves, because light's basically a wave according to classical physics, according to quantum physics, it's a particle, but nobody really knows. They're, they're figuring that, they're working on that one. Um, we'll figure it out eventually. But anyway, it depends on whether you're measuring it or not. If you measure it, it's a photon, and you can see it like a, in one place, but then if you don't measure it, it's a wave, so it's a whole thing. But anyway, uh, or at least electrons operate that way. Photons, I'm not so sure about, but anyway, <laughs> without going too off task. So the shorter wavelengths, higher frequency, more intensity light, which is ultraviolet, blue wavelengths within the visible range. Now, if you go past that, then you get to the X-rays, gamma rays, the stuff that can literally, it has so much power. It's microwaves. called ionizing. Yeah, microwaves are on the other side, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, other side. That's so surprising. Those, the, high, the shorter wavelength, higher frequency light, it has more energy per uh, per photon. And this light, ultraviolet, but then x-rays and so on, it has so much energy, it can actually ionize an atom, which means breaking off its electrons because the light so powerful can break off electrons. And then that can create biological problems when the system needs to be stable. When you start ionizing things, that's why radiation poisoning is very, very, very mm. painful and deadly very quickly from like Chernobyl and that kind of stuff, or slow and painful. Uh, but I think painful is a consistent thing when you have severe radiation poisoning because your insides are literally like, they don't even, it's not that they're rotting, it's like they've literally been broken apart at the most fundamental atomic level. I would not want to know what that feels like. I'll just mm -hmm. put it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, longer wavelengths within the visible spectrum, so the opposite side of the spectrum from blue and ultraviolet and then the X-rays and the gamma rays and all that stuff, the longer wavelengths short, uh, slower frequencies are red, then infrared, so or red, orange, yellow, but then infrared, so I should say yellow, orange, red, infrared going in that direction, then microwaves, radio waves, these are longer wavelengths. So they're not ionizing. They don't directly break off electrons from the atoms and molecules that make us up, but they have different effects. And so side note, but one of the reasons why they say that like cell phone radiation couldn't actually affect and hurt our cells, which isn't true, is that it's non-ionizing. It's like radio and microwaves. But actually, just because it doesn't directly break apart atoms and molecules doesn't mean it doesn't have a biological effect. 
those have all sorts of different biological effects, just not ionizing effects. But so they use that in the industry to say, oh, these things are totally safe. Now, here I am using Wi-Fi right now. I'm not plugged in on Ethernet because I'm on the road. But yeah, there's a lot of like messy stuff going on. But so with melanin, we make more melanin when we're in the sun. So even within someone with light skin, typically, not everyone, it depends on their genetics. It also depends, I think, a lot more on their epigenetics, so the factors we're turning on based on our nutrition, our toxin levels, circadian rhythms, because if you're, if you're really healthy, you're doing, or no, you, can't, you can't be really healthy, I should say, if your circadian rhythms are off, but if you're doing otherwise healthy things and your circadian rhythms are all off, your body's not gonna be as capable with its hormones and everything of adapting to different types of light. But all of these factors would affect how well someone can tan. So when I was a kid, I was extremely pale and I would burn very quickly and I couldn't tan, I wouldn't tan. Ever since I got more into this health stuff, I'll tan. I won't turn super brown. I'd like to get be able to tan darker and I'm working on tweaking different variables, but I can get a really good tan and stay out in basically tropical or equatorial sun for multiple hours and be fine. Whereas when I was younger, I would be in like Martha's Vineyard, which you may know, it's like an island off of Cape Cod, which is not tropical at all, really far north, but in the summer and I would get burnt and I would be like in the most horrible pain ever. So like for, sun that's many, many times stronger. I can handle it for much, much longer than when I was younger. So lots of improvement with different factors. But so that's within a human lifetime or within a single person like me with my genetic predispositions, I can get certain level of tanness and I can change that with my epigenetics, but I don't believe I could ever become as like have as dark skin as someone from sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe, maybe, but I'd have to be like really good or doing something like really specific or there'd have to be some scientific breakthrough. Um, and then, so yeah, so you can change your tan level within your life, but then also there's like your base level, let's say. So like people with much darker skin can get really pale if they're in somewhere with winter, but their darkest tone of their skin probably won't get lighter than a certain bit. But with, so within not only our lifetime, but within each season, like our tan level is supposed to change with the season. So more tan in the spring and summer and so on, and then less in the winter. So it's like an adaptive system. Because you want your skin to be as translucent in the winter when the sunlight to is less To bring in that available. vitamin D to, to, to help. So when people are like hitting the tanning beds because they want that like summer glow in December, it's like, well now you're going to have to fight a lot harder to make energy from the light you're receiving because it's already so scarce, right? Kind of, yeah. It would be, I guess you could say, it's a good point. I, I'm not necessarily opposed to people using tanning beds in the winter, actually. I think it could be a decent idea, but like within very much reason. But yeah, like if the goal is to just get really tan, it's not a great idea. But if the goal is to do like, I would, yeah, say like do enough that you don't really start tanning much, your body will start tanning inevitably a little bit, but before the real serious tanning that would be smart because then you're getting the exposure but not overdoing it so like it's almost like a small amount of dosage of, of the sunlight you're bringing in from tanning would be beneficial mm. but if you're mm. like i'm going to tempering the skin be as yeah. bronze as possible yeah probably not super advisable i would say okay so here's my thing too is like when i i don't really go to a public pool very often but i've i can picture a beach right and people are laying out in the sun and they're tanning but they're wearing sunglasses and i stopped wearing sunglasses probably three years ago and i have greenish blue eyes like very light eyes and i'm not bothered by the sun to be honest but 
Is there something, because you mentioned that your eyes and your skin are receiving the stimulus of the sun to then produce all these kind of mechanisms that take place in the body. So when we wear sunglasses, how is that impacting our body's response to whatever sunlight we're exposed to? Such a great question. So based on what I've read, there's one particular study talking about this. So I'd like to see like more research, but there's not as much as I'd like on the specific subject. And I always encourage people, by the way, to go go on PubMed, go on the internet, start reading papers, knowing that there's lots of conflicts of interest, there's lots of bad science, but read the methods, read, like try to see if it actually makes sense to you. But there's evidence to suggest that ultraviolet B light, which is part of the light they consider really bad and causing cataracts and all this stuff and why they say you should wear sunglasses from the optical industry, which I don't believe at all, um, in quite the same way at least. Uh, that that UVB light is a stimulus for our brain, which the brain is kind of the leader of most functions in the body. It's the core of the central nervous system, essentially, that coordinates pretty much everything in the body. Um, so that stimulus to the brain tells the brain to make more of a hormone called alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone. And more alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone is what it sounds like, stimulates melanocytes. So more of that hormone, which is stimulated by light through the eye, causes the body to make more melanocytes, which are there, or increase the activity of melanocytes at least. And so those melanocytes then produce melanin, which protects us in our eyes and our skin and everywhere. So you could theoretically say, based on some of the evidence available, and I do believe this makes sense also from just seeing it, personal experience, that if you go into the sun wearing sunglasses, you're not getting the signal on the most important sensor, which is the eye for the body, of the actual photonic information of the environment. And therefore, your body won't be as well equipped to handle that environment. And you could also say that you're throwing off the body's natural protective mechanisms, one of which is squinting and getting overwhelmed by high intensity light, which would normally kick us, make us want to get into the shade as soon as possible or somewhere to cool off. You put that on. So all of a sudden your skin is getting blasted by light that your brain is saying, this is not good. I'm not cool with this. But you kind of, you kind of trick the system to say, no, I'm good. I'm chilling. And then you could get sunburn more easily and potentially increase your predisposition to skin cancer potentially like things like this which i wouldn't recommend so generally i don't advise from everything i've studied and the experts i've spoken with in the field who study this much much longer than me we work with different experts on our products and everything in the space uh the time that it is more advisable to wear sunglasses is on in reflective highly reflective environments so like on a boat on the water uh, on off of snow beach on sand or off of snow exactly skiing those are it's more advisable but even then i prefer to get the light i love it i feel great and to your point about not needing sunglasses not being bothered about this by the sun i remember similarly to how i would burn as a kid it was proportionately bat like i was proportionately sensitive to the light through my eyes and i remember going out in the middle of the summer and being like oh my gosh like it hurt my eyes i couldn't even keep my eyes open thankfully i didn't wear a ton of sunglasses as a kid i guess i adjusted after a while which is what we do because we're very adaptable but um 
Yeah, people could strengthen their eyes by going outside, even in the earlier morning hours, if it is the middle of the summer or if it's the winter, just going out at any time and just letting the light hit their eyes and stimulate this sort of adjustment process, let's say. Yeah, childhood um, sunglasses are very trendy right now. So little kids are walking around with shades on and I'm just like, okay, I know it's cute, but I do wonder, you know, how that impacts... Mm -hmm. Not just good. their their future development of of their almost like sun tolerance is how, is kind of how I view it. And what I did is like in the springtime, I start out by like I'll go outside for twenty minutes or thirty minutes or forty five minutes and get some of that like early April kind of sun exposure on my skin. And then by the time we hit June and July, I feel like I and I don't wear sunscreen ever. Um, but I'm not walking out mid-July having been inside for the previous months and then sitting outside for three hours because then I would burn. So I feel like I'm building a bit of a sun tolerance, whether it's just placebo effect or it's actually working in my body. I mean, I can see my skin tone changing. So I feel like the same thing happens with our kids. I don't know. Fortunately, I just never looked good in sunglasses. <laughs> Ever. You I just was just, never it was just never yeah. a vibe. And I was like, man, I can't wear these things. I was like, I would see my friends and be kind of jealous. I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. No, no sunglasses blessed. for me. Yeah, Big blessed. <laughs> blessed with an ugly face. Um, age. Sun gods look favorably upon you. For sure. I had a question before. I, I, I know we're going to wrap up here soon, but I was really yeah. interested in this. And you brought up, uh, man, say his name again. I know him. I, I just did not pronounce it as as properly as you did. The marathon runner, Kim Chogi. Uh, Kip Chogi. Kip Chogi. I don't know if it's he, correct. I, I, I've read it a million times. I've watched him run. Um, this guy is, he's like hitting like sub four minute splits for 26 plus miles. Uh, unbelievable, unbelievable marathon runner. And I'm a marathon runner. So this is uh, the, the exciting thing for me to bring up is that I've been doing a lot of research on running. And um, I, I wanted to, kind of re relate this one i don't know how how old kipchoge is i'm guess i i believe he's older i don't i think he's uh older than 30 um i haven't I haven't actually looked into that he could be young 38 years 38 wow. so one thing i was going to bring up is typically um, ultra marathon and endurance sports so not like a usain bolt so that would not be what i would consider um endurance i'd call that like quick twitch like sprinting and like soccer players basketball players football football players not endurance sports necessarily soccer would be the closest to that but not necessarily yeah soccer is got to be pretty fit there but like but yeah endurance sports athletes tend to actually have a an advantage when they get older and this sounds so counterintuitive because typically you're looking at people like Tom Brady and you're like man he's at the end of his career but he is just unbelievable because he made it into his 40s but you look at a lot of these ultra marathon runners you look at a lot of these marathon runners and and when they're at their peak they're in that 35 to 45 sometimes even 50 year old range it's very interesting and I'm curious from like a sunlight perspective um, even like eyesight the way we're metabolizing energy is any of this interconnected or related? Am I that one I have no idea. I mean, I would love to have an answer and I, I know who I would ask. I would ask our, one of our scientific advisors, like, do you see any connections or why do you think that is? But I imagine there's some good explanations on the internet. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what they would be, but I don't know. That's a very interesting phenomenon that you point out. And I, I thought of it as you guys were talking. One, you brought up the, the runner. I'm like, man, I wonder how old he is. I've seen pictures of him. Like, He's got to be older. But 
but then also this idea of running, I was thinking about that. And then, and then we started talking about how the resilience to sunlight that we almost like build up. And I wonder if we become more efficient, more effective. It's, just, it's very curious to me, this idea of, of, of tanning and, and the way we process sunlight differently, the more exposure we have, there's like a tempering that is occurring. Um, again, this is all speculation. I would be surprised if like, gene- like epigenetically, this would probably make the most sense to me that for at least for endurance running where it's less about so endurance running got all of a sudden a good answer comes wow that's amazing so uh when it comes to like physical power sports it could make sense that people are best when they're younger or like peaking at 27 mm-hmm. like sort of the human's peak they mm-hmm. say uh because physically at least speaking because you need that physical power like pure muscular power as well as energy production but it's like power uh, compared to endurance running, you don't really need as much power per se as you need like the ability to sustain the power. Like mm-hmm. Yogi probably wouldn't beat most like buff twenty year olds at arm wrestling, but he could run them literally until they would die. They would drop <laughs> yes. if they kept up with him. Even first of all, physically they couldn't keep up with him for one mile. Most no. people, I don't think I could, no. but. Um, for even half a mile, even 400 meters, most people couldn't keep up with him. But for 26 miles, I would assume that over his lifetime, he's having, he mu- in fact, I wouldn't even say I assume, I would say certainly there must be epigenetic modifications happening in his mitochondria. He must be getting better and more efficient over time as like, cause he wasn't necessarily born. He's born with certain genes, but born to be pushing himself at that level. But so within his lifetime, it's very likely that his mitochondria adapt and like sort of select themselves. The, you know, they so the bad ones, they don't just select themselves out, they just die. The ones that can't really keep up to what he's demanding of them. So he sort of tr- conditions his body over a lifetime to where his mitochondria are the, the only the most efficient mitochondria survive so that he could do that. It would make sense to me if that has something to do with it, but I can't say for sure. The inverse of that is talked about somewhat in this book I read called The Comfort the Comfort Crisis. And the concept is that we as human beings were so we adapt so well to harsh environments and as of lately we've been doing a really good job of helping ourselves adapt to extremely comfortable environments. Yeah. Everything from really cushioned shoes to temperature temperature controlled environments to sunglasses to like, you know, this idea of I can go out for a run and it's, you know, 30 degrees and I'm like, am I bundling up? Well, if I'm coming right off of hunting season where I've been sitting outside in the woods in the freezing temperatures for weeks, man, I can go hit that run with shorts and a t-shirt on. But if, if I'm coming off of, you know, a weird February, like we had in, in Cincinnati, at least where we had some weird sixties for a while, all of a sudden I go out to go for that run and it's 30 degrees. And I'm like, I need like leggings, you know, three layers of beanie gloves, wool socks, and, and I'm cold the whole time and I'm really upset. Right. So it's just, it's just a very interesting, uh, a very interesting concept that, our, that the way our bodies can adapt to different environments that we put ourselves in on a regular basis. And so uh, Fascinating I love that. Point. I yeah. love that. Joe, I know you got to go, but I want to dive into artificial light a little bit. Are you offended if down. we if we have a conversation? Let's go. Uh, do you want to? No, I'll stay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's uh, let's see. Um, I got like ten minutes. Okay, I don't know if we can tackle this conversation in ten minutes, but I'll be efficient. That's what I'll try to be like. Kipchoge's mitochondria. <laughs> One of the things I'm thinking of is like 
well, the, the whole reason we're, we're both wearing these glasses right now is because I'm sitting in a basement. And I have artificial light beaming on me and I'm staring at a blue screen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, screens there, screens there, ever, screens everywhere. What is the biological effect of exposure to man-made light versus sunlight, even if it's, you know, just having like a lot of times my daughter will turn all of our lights off and she just wants natural sunlight in our house and she doesn't want any lights on. So we're just lit naturally versus turning on the LEDs or there's fluorescence in here. What's what is that really changing how our body interacts or are there real tangible differences in man-made light and sunlight? Definitely. Yeah, there are lots of changes. So let's see where to begin. Wow. (laughs) Um, So when it comes to light, like if we think about different wavelengths and frequencies, like there are these waves or photons moving through space, carrying different amounts of energy and momentum through space. And some are basically carrying more and some are less. So like the shorter wavelengths are more powerful. The longer wavelengths are a bit, let's say, um, less powerful, but the speed of light is consistent. So light moves at the same speed. It's like, but there's different amounts of momentum and power that it carries. So the shorter wavelengths, like of the light, the light of the sun is a very broad spectrum. It emits basically a hu- most of the electromagnetic spectrum that you can Google search and see. It goes all the way from x-rays, gamma rays, all this stuff to microwaves and so on. The sun emits a lot of that. What comes to the earth that isn't filtered by our atmosphere are basically the colors we know in vision terms, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, ultraviolet. Well, so actually the other way around, I think of it typically um, ultraviolet, violet, blue, as we go to the longer wavelengths, green, yellow, orange, red, and infrared. So brain trick for people is try saying the rainbow backwards and add violet and ultraviolet and infrared on the ends. But anyway, um, these are the colors of light that comes come to the earth, and these are the ones that we're concerned with when we speak about life, because the other ones that don't reach the earth aren't really relevant for us. And so the sun has all of these colors or wavelengths. So wavelength is the scientific term. Color is a more relatable thing because we perceive different wavelengths as different colors. Mm-hmm. There's other wavelengths that we don't see, like you, we don't really see ultraviolet very much at all, and we don't see infrared very much at all. Uh, very, very little. We can actually see tiny amounts, even though they say we can't see any, but we can see very little. Um, anyway, so because this, the peak sensitivity of our eye is green, the green color. So like our photoreceptors have peak sensitivity in green. So if you had a light bulb of all the different colors of the rainbow, same intensities, the green one would appear the brightest, even if it's not brighter than the others. Not because it's brighter, but because our eye is more sensitive. It has more green light absorbing pigments in it than the others. That's it. So the image in our brain that's made of the green would be bright, like slightly brighter than Mm. the others. So the curve goes from centered in green. And the further you go to the red or violet, the less well our eye picks up those colors. And hence, when you get to infrared and ultraviolet, it barely picks them up at all. So that's just for people to get an idea of like the different colors coming to the earth. And these are the the wavelengths or colors. I'll use the two kind of interchangeably that the painting of life is painted with. So you could kind of think of the sun like a painter in a way. It's a loose analogy. Um, The light coming from the sun like the painter's arm and brush and the wavelengths contained in that light, the different wavelengths or colors, like the uh, colors on the palette. And then earth is like an interactive canvas with when the when the 
paints, the colors finally hit the canvas, it creates sort of an image, something in a way alive with color. And that's really like what life is. The, the light energy from the sun interacts with different um, atoms and molecules in us that uh, our, our body can essentially utilize for different functions. So it, in a, essentially, that's how it works. It's a bit of a loose analogy. Again, the exact details are a bit... I, I'm still working on comprehending the whole thing, to be honest with you. It is, it is something really amazing. But essentially, uh, so when it comes to artificial light now, that is man-made light and it doesn't contain the same spectrum. So ultraviolet, violet, blue, green, yellow, orange, red, infrared, it doesn't contain that full spectrum, we call it, that natural light contains. So it'd be like if you told a painter their painting was limited to only red, green, and blue, which is what all modern LEDs are based on. You would get a much less colored picture. Now you can try, which is what all modern screens and iPhones and computers and everything try to do, is to combine red, green, and blue. Sometimes they add yellow, which does change the game significantly um, as far as what you can do. But if you just have RGB, you can try to combine them all you can, and you could search purple on your computer, and you will get a really something that looks to the brain very similar to purple based on the combination of blue and red, or I should say violet, based on blue and red and this and that. But it's not the actual wavelengths of violet, so it's different. It's because of the brain's perception of the light, not of the actual light. Now I'm getting into a bit of detail, but basically artificial light in a similar way paints an incomplete picture for us in our biology. We need the other wavelengths. We need infrared, we need ultraviolet. Our body contains certain molecules and atoms and, and organelles and systems like our mitochondria that evolved with infrared light and utilize infrared light. And we're gonna have to do another podcast, honestly, but utilize infrared light to make energy effectively. And so if we deprive ourselves from that infrared light, which is approximately 40% of all the light coming from the sun is just near infrared light. So the majority of what's reaching the earth. And that's always outside, even on a cloudy day, even on a winter day, there's still a, a certain amount of near infrared light. You can measure it with a meter. I measure it with my meter. It's a lot less in the winter than in the summer, but it's still there and it's still capable of powering our biology. And this goes to the translucence of skin and so on. Um, you know, you can absorb some of that, more of that near infrared. Well, the melanin actually mostly blocks the ultraviolet. So the good thing is that people can, even with darker skin, can absorb at least the near infrared, which is great in the winter. Anyway, we don't have that indoors. When walls block it, windows, modern windows, especially energy efficient windows, block that near infrared. And modern lights don't have it. They used to, incandescent bulbs, lamps, used to emit, they emit near infrared, but we don't use incandescent lamps anymore because the powers that be decided that those lamps, which are more close to a fire in a sense, because they're basically not exactly, but the way that the electricity on the tungsten filament causes it to basically it it's in, it incandesces, it's incandescent because it incandesces. It basically emits light through the process of the heating of tungsten emitting light, and it can last for a really long time because it's a very powerful, durable metal tungsten. But anyway, um, that was the case in the past. Now our modern lighting, so they took that out. They basically said these so much these lights are so inefficient because the brighter you make incandescent lights, the more light they re the more heat they release, which is near infrared light. The more, and they're saying that's a waste because we can't see it. But what they don't know, or at least didn't know, is that the light that they're saying is a waste, this near infrared light, 
is the light that is responsible for the optimal function of human cells. So in the kind of save the planet craze, which if you think about it, the planet's not going anywhere, but it just makes you question the whole thing. It makes me question the whole thing. Like save the planet, so what? You know, the planet will be fine, but the species on it, the humans in particular, probably might could kill ourselves if we aren't careful, right, with what we're doing and polluting. But it's like, okay, but then we're going to literally change the lights so that they become from being like not bad for us, in fact, like decently good lights, old school true incandescent lights, to something absolutely toxic. So modern LEDs, fluorescents are also horrible, but they're less commonly used now because they're just less efficient as well and, and much like the color is even worse than modern LEDs, which are already not optimal. But now we have lights that, so we don't have the near infrared, so like the power source, the, the, the energy that is like the most important for organisms that are based on mitochondria and water, which is all organisms, um, in all, not all organisms, but all modern humans and animals, and humans, the ones living under artificial light, is very important for us to have the near infrared. We've cut it out completely. And so we, people think light's only for vision, only for seeing. And so we've enriched the light with more blue and more green, but lots of blue in particular because it's very efficient now. They have very good blue LEDs and it stimulates, especially it stimulates us to wake up. So like people are being, I don't want to say unfair because fair is subjective, but against their knowledge and if they knew against probably their will as well, stimulated with artificial light to produce more people, more productive at work, stay active. So manipulating hormones in the workplace with artificial lights. And it's not even like it's done in, intentionally. So anyway, artificial light, uh, especially blue enriched light is harmful because it, and I'm just wrap this up basically, it unnaturally stimulates our hormonal system in favor of our stress hormones like cortisol. It unnaturally stimulates increased energy production in our mitochondria but inefficiently without the power of near-infrared light. So our mitochondria produce a lot more biological metabolic smoke, which is called reactive oxygen species in biology. So smoke comes out of a not clean burning fire where it's damp. But in the case of biology, what we call metabolic smoke, reactive oxygen species comes out when we're conducting the process of metabolism without the optimal light, which is largely near-infrared, uh, which is the absent from our indoor environments. So it's a pretty big issue. And so effects, blue light can cause retinal damage, especially our retina is very sensitive. Excess blue light from LEDs causes retinal damages, which is why we make our daylight lenses to protect from this. And then at night, any blue light, especially high intensity blue light from modern sources, disrupts our body's production and or secretion, I should say, of melatonin, which is the most important antioxidant, anti-aging, anti-cancer molecule to repair all of our cells while we sleep, repair our mitochondria. Melatonin repairs the mitochondria, the engines. And so that leads to also illnesses and disease. So like our daylight lenses focus on retinal protection primarily during the day from artificial light. They're not meant to be worn outside primarily, although mm -hmm. you could if you wanted to in one of these reflective environments. And then our sunset lenses at raw optics are made to be worn at night to protect the brain from and the body from the disruptive effects of artificial light. How is that? I love it. And that's why I have, like, I'm wearing the daylight, but the sunset yeah. are, are much darker. darker. Yeah, essentially they are darker and they also block, they're darker because they block more wavelengths. They block, so the yellow ones block basically, give or take 90 to 95% of blue light. It just depends on which wavelengths of blue light we're talking about. 
but approximately give or take 95% of blue light on the whole. These block, the, the red lenses block 99 plus percent. And then uh, when you look at the different wavelengths, it's very minuscule. The amount, and the only way to get any blue light through these lenses is extremely high intensity. So part of how we test our lenses is with extremely high intensity flashlights that you would not uh, be exposed to with your eyes. And they even still block the vast majority of that. So they're very, very powerful filters. Anyway, uh, these block not only the blue, but also a vast majority of green light wavelengths. And green hasn't been studied nearly as much for its effects on melatonin suppression. But all people need to know is that the, the further you go to the blue wavelengths from a wavelength perspective, these are more stimulating for biology. They wake us up and activate our hormonal system. Red light is more healing. There's longer wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So when we block more green, we're actually removing more of the light that basically causes us to uh, wake up. And so we get tired faster. Joey, I think you're going, if you can hear me, saying goodbye. He's out. He's out the door. Well, um, give him a big hug for me later. I will. And you're right. We're definitely going to have to do a part two to this because this is fascinating yeah. for me. So basically so what's happening you is you're adding in that yellow that's missing from an artificial light. Am I getting Actually, that right? no, we're not. We can't. We'd have to use a light source to do that. What okay. we're doing is we put pigments in the lens that basically absorb blue light. And in absorbing blue light, the rest of the colors that pass through, red and green, and the others combine to appear as yellow. Mm -hmm. And so the reason you see yellow is because when you see a certain color on an object, it is, if you see like a rose is red. The interesting thing about roses is that atomically, molecularly, they absorb everything except red. Mm -hmm. So roses are actually, in some respects, everything but red. Mm -hmm. But we see them as red because that's, because they're everything except red. So like, gosh, what's another example? Oranges, they reflect or yeah, they, yeah, they re reflect slash re-emit orange, what we call orange, the wavelengths that we perceive as the color orange and call orange. Um, they're basically absorbing everything but that. So you could say that everything we've ever been told is a lie and oranges aren't actually orange. They're actually everything but orange. And the only reason we see orange is because they reflect orange. Of course, I'm kind of joking, but <laughs> it's kind of true. No, it's it's kind of like a, a mind uh, trick on you. Um, one of the things that a lot of people were saying was like, I think first of all in the health world, people are starting to wake up to, hey, chemical sunscreen is, is not ideal, not only for us, but also for our aquatic life. Mm -hmm. But then mineral sunscreen, which acts as more of a physical barrier, uh, is kind of like everyone's next go-to. And I, I lived in that space for a long time, and I would even say, like, I would, I would often say, like, well, if I'm going to Florida, like, I'll apply mineral sunscreen, but it tends to actually not work for me. Like, I burn when I put on mineral sunscreen. Mm. And so... How do you interact with folks who have this like real palpable almost fear of the sun to the point where they feel like they have to put on sunscreen or wear sunglasses because we have been told that your eyes will get injured, your skin will get injured, you will develop skin cancer. 
when in reality there might be other ways that we can filter our sun exposure for me that's like covering up or maybe spending 10 minutes in the shade and then incrementally exposing myself to the sun but how do you have conversations with people like this because it's something that I've come across and there's some real fear around sun exposure you know I just had like I just had this interesting thought when you said that which is I would be curious if you studied everyone who's afraid of the sun and studied in parallel their relationships with their mothers and if there would be a parallel I bet there would I know the two might sound unrelated but the sun is our cosmic mother essentially or father however you'd like to put it but mother is better in the sense of giver of life so the reason I say that and the reason the thought I believe popped in my head is because it is like being afraid of your mother like your mother gave you life so to say that your mother is your your killer let's say there maybe I'm sure it's happened before that a mother has killed her children sadly but you know in rare in rare cases whatever but like in general like mothers have anything but the desire to harm their own children quite the opposite right mm-hmm. I think you would know mm-hmm. I wouldn't at this moment but I'm sure fathers have pretty similar instincts but not like mama bear like right mama bear is the one you don't want to mess with when you're out in the forest when the bear shows up so anyway so like well, the reason I say that is because the logic of sun being bad for us is like pretty equivalent to the logic of the mo- like a mother being bad for her children mm. like your existence is predicated on your mother so to ask to to think that she's bad for you you couldn't even have the thought that she's bad for you without her i don't actually need to say anything else <laughs> because it, it only dilutes the the truest of points which i just made however i i will anyway um the sun is the giver of life and so to be afraid of the sun is to be afraid of the source of life itself to run from the source of life is to kind of run from the source of life and hence life itself and so I would say that anyone who's afraid of the sun probably doesn't really most likely have a life that's full of color they can't because the color comes from the light and I know I'm I'm using that in a sort of a lingu- as a like a pun almost but the words the meaning is equivalent when the pun when people say my life is so full of color you immediately think my life is rich there's so much great stuff going on and if you said your life is pale and dull like it's so so perfectly aligned with the the light interacting in our biology because that's kind of all it is like it sounds crazy but like imagine if you couldn't see anything if you lived in total darkness you only have the senses of touch taste smelling that's there's five senses I'm missing one and hearing um like I think it's something like 80 percent of sensory information probably maybe more comes just from our eyes for as far as our brain is concerned so like you basically remove such a significant portion of life why am I saying that because 
the reason I'm sharing that example about how much of our sensory experience in our brain is coming, the vast majority is coming from our eyes, doesn't mean it's the most foundational. Audio is actually, according to at least Ayurvedic traditional Indian science, audio goes deeper. So like a lot of the time I prefer like some, you know, sometimes it's, it's cool to just have a call with someone just on audio because it kind of, you can close your eyes and go deeper into your subconscious. I like being able to see people at the same time. It's a lot of information. So for podcasts, it's great. But the reason I say that is that what it means is if, so if you still can see, but no, let me put this another way. Our experience of the world, like everything is light, like light, like our, our experience of the world technically, scientifically is happening in our mind. And it's composed of images in our mind that are created by different wavelengths of light that come into our eye. So if someone lives in a indoor environment only powered by artificial light, which would be the only possible outcome if you were afraid of the sun, you're ability to to perceive reality like our ability to perceive reality is already super limited with our existing senses compared like our five senses our pineal gland the third eye as they call it i believe that opens things further but so you're limiting yourself so much let me put this another way this is coming in as i as i'm going like what if someone thought was afraid of the sun two hundred thousand years ago what would they just stay in a cave all day they would rot. Like so what would what would the, the kings do or queens with their political enemies? They would throw them in a dungeon. And where is a dungeon out in a beautiful field bathing in light? No. The dungeons are in the basement with no light. And that's how they get their political enemies to lose their vital energy and power and basically become useless. They wouldn't kill them because it might cause enough of an outcry. Maybe sometimes they would, but they would usually often just make them rot which is essentially what happens when we don't have light. In fact, it does happen when we don't have light because ultraviolet light is what kills bacteria as well. Mm -hmm. So it actually, um, our skin, so like if we were bacteria, like our ancestors, bacterial ancestors, according to the traditional theory of evolution, like ultraviolet light would kill us. But we've developed as this more complex cell where we started speaking about, so we've kind of come full circle, we've developed systems to be able to survive and exist and even thrive and utilize the high power from ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light's not to be feared except maybe in excess, uh, if, with excess exposure, but our system has been evolved to take advantage of so much energy in ultraviolet light that we can use. That's why we use it to make vitamin D and all sorts of cool stuff. So... 200,000 years ago, if you were afraid of the sun, you would live in darkness and you wouldn't even have a life. You literally wouldn't be able to exist. So it's just, I know I've said this many different ways, but like to be afraid of the sun, it's pretty illogical. And also from all the stuff we talked about today, I mean, we could get into more on the next episode, but if you look at all the different functions in the body that light directs and controls like optimizing our energy production in our cells optimizing vitamin d synthesis like if you don't go in the sun you're going to function at a suboptimal level biologically there's virtually no no ways around it i'm only familiar with one which is like really advanced monks and yogi meditators who get so good at cultivating their inner light where the external light becomes irrelevant that is my personal area of fascination now even more than this and this is also an area of fascination, one, but that is like, whew. so that's going to be part two. Yeah, I can't that's, wait. That's something really fascinating. But so like, let's see, is there anything else? My question is, so Oops. I'm going to play like 
opposition for a moment because people the, the narrative it. right is like well because our ozone layer has been deteriorated or whatever atmospheric kind of phenomenon has happened due to changes in the planet now the sun is more dangerous is like the the theory right is like well sure we didn't have chemical sunscreen and sunglasses 200 300 years ago but the sun wasn't maybe as intense does mm. any of that hold up in in your research in your theory or is that more of just the narrative that we've been we've been told i'm pretty sure i can't say 100 with 100 certainty but there is good evidence that that is happening from human produced chemicals that happen to deplete the ozone layer now it's gotten a lot better uh compared to how it was years ago again based on what i've what i've studied uh, and we are not putting out quite the same amount of specific chemicals that absolutely destroy the ozone layer. So, yes, I do believe there is some truth to that, but I don't believe it's as big of an issue as it's been made out to be. And still, like another example would be like, if all the water on the earth were slightly polluted, would you stop drinking water completely? You could, but you'd die. So it's like... People have to think of it, nobody has to do anything. But based on the evidence, the way I think about it, is that sun is so much the source of life on Earth. As much or more than water. And so, yeah, all the water could be polluted, all the water from every spring in the world, which I don't think it is. Someone else might make the case that it is. I, I don't personally know, that's not exactly what I study. But even if it were you'd have no choice but to still drink it if you wanted to live, and it might just lower your quality of life. So is the modern sun maybe slightly suboptimal compared to how it was some period ago in history? Maybe, but I'm generally pretty skeptical of some of these um, theories that like the world is ending and everything's horrible. I think it uh, usually has more to do with like bringing people in fear and separation and I think humans are going in a great direction and humanity's moving in a really positive direction and we're maybe going to move into a golden age so to speak or we already are some people others will choose and I think it'll depend from person to person like some people live in hell right now some mm -hmm. people live in heaven and some people are in the middle mm -hmm. and I've been very much in a challenging places in my life and I've also been in some really great places mentally and psychologically speaking spiritually speaking anyway Hence uh, my explanation. I think we should not fear the sun. I think we should be very open to it. And I think anyone who gets even 5% of what we share today will experience it, feel it. It does change your life when you start letting full spectrum light into your life. It changes you. People have told me for years they think I'm extremely intelligent, blah, blah, blah. I guess I was considered pretty smart even before I did all this sun stuff. But I, I think that the sun has helped me to be a bit more of a vibrant person where like sure maybe everyone has their own unique soul qualities but I believe whatever uh like I'm grateful for whatever led me to this information about sunlight because I believe it's enhanced me as a person by creating helping me to develop into a more broad spectrum full spectrum human with a broader sense of color uh more metaphorically speaking right now, but also scientifically, physically speaking, and that that has uh, helped me in many ways to have some success I've had. And yeah, it's, it's not like the sun will necessarily solve all of someone's problems. And that's where our next thing about cultivating inner light could be really useful, our next conversation. But 
I think I, I know it's really important, and, and the, the evidence supports it, and everything we've spoken to today really emphasizes the important role that some plays. So anyway, with that being said, I should also get running, and um, I really appreciate us having this conversation today. Yeah, I love it. Real quick before you head out, let people know where they can find you in the meantime before we do record a part two because they might have some questions. So where can they find you? Yeah, so people can go to rawoptics.com, which is my company website, but we also share a lot of information there. We share a lot of information to our email list uh, and our text message list, like exclusive deals and also sales and just exclusive information that we share to kind of give people tips about light. Uh, people can find then the company on Instagram, raw underscore optics, and people can follow me on Instagram at the light diet if they want to. And that's where I will share information and more. We have lots of exciting things coming. So Beautiful. We'll link all that in the show notes and then people can find you that way. Thank you so yeah, much, Matt, for you. coming. Is, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good one. And with that, Matt Maruka has left the virtual chat. Unfortunately, Joey had to leave us early today. So... Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. As I mentioned several times, we will definitely be bringing Matt back in for a part two. But before I leave you all, I wanted to let you know that Matt has generously offered all of our listeners 10% off of their lenses. So you can go to rawoptics.com slash homegrown for 10% off of all of their products. That's rawoptics.com slash homegrown. Um, or you can also use the discount code homegrown at checkout. So they, big thanks to Matt and the Raw Optics team for lending their generosity there. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and we will see you all next time.